Good morning to each and all of you and a very warm welcome. My hope for you all is that the blessings of God's great love will be with you wherever you are and that each and all of you may know in your hearts the abundance of his joy today and that the fullness of his strong peace will keep your heart and minds as you face the challenges that you will face today and in the coming week. Stephen is going to bring us our first reading today. Our first reading comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians at chapter 13, reading verses 1 to 7 in the Good News Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I may be able to speak the languages of men and even of angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains. But if I have no love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have and even give up my body to be burnt. But if I have no love, this does me no good. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up, and its faith, hope, and patience never fail. Friends, will you just join with me in a prayer of thanksgiving? God, whose love reaches the highest heavens, how can we keep silence? God, whose love stands stronger than the tallest mountain, how can we be afraid? God, whose love is deeper than any ocean, how can we keep silent? God, whose love flows like a never-ending river, how can we ever despair? How can we not proclaim your amazing love from generation to generation, from person to person, from people to people? How can we not tell the great news of your love for all the world to hear? A God whose love never ends. We are here to praise your mighty name. For you are the Father who welcomes home the weary prodigal who has wandered far. You are the Father who prepares a celebratory meal when others would simply stand and condemn you are the Father whose love constantly looks for us and seeks us out. You are the Father who knows the foolishness and darknesses that can be often bound up in our hearts and yet you never stop loving us. You are the Father in whose warm embrace we find comfort, in whose presence 
we need have no fear. For you are the Father whose gentle touch makes our wounded spirits whole. You are the Father whose gracious love we will celebrate today. In Jesus' name, Amen. And now Stephen will bring us our second reading. Our second reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians at chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 5 from The Message. Philippians chapter 2. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favour. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. Friends, would you join with me for a moment as we say the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give to us this day our daily bread, and forgive us for our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What business was Jesus in? In fact, what business is the church in? And what business are we as local churches in? The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, a man whose works had a profound effect on 20th century political thinking, once said, all truths are bloody truths to me. What Nietzsche meant was that Truth must always be embodied. It must also be incarnated. In other words, when a truth was not embodied in the flesh and blood and daily living of those who professed it, then for Nietzsche, and I rightly so, it is not really a truth to those people or to that person. It is simply a loosely held opinion and invariably an opinion that they have borrowed from someone else. In fact, to Nietzsche, hypocrisy was intellect dissociated from action. Now here's the challenge to us as Christians, friends. How can we know the effects of an idea, the effects of a truth that we hold to be true, that we champion? How will we know the effect that that truth will have on the world if we haven't, first of all, infused our own lives with that ideal? If we have not faced and dealt with the real-time consequences of living that ideal and that truth out. 
In other words, if that ideal or that idea or that truth which you hold to be true does not inhabit you, does not transform you at every personal and interpersonal level, then you are nothing more than a carrier of an opinion. If you have not taken that ideal, that truth that you hold dear and integrated it into who you are, then you are simply an echo of an echo of an echo. I often think of what was said about John the Baptist, a voice. Jesus referred to John the Baptist as a voice, not as an echo. I think about how the people responded to Jesus after he preached the Sermon on the Mount. The Gospels tell us that they marveled, for Jesus spoke with authority, unlike the scribes. Unlike the scribes, who were merely having ideas pass through them, parleying in other people's opinions, there was something authentic about what Jesus said, something, a note of genuineness, that when he spoke, his words came from the very core of his being. The reading we heard this morning is all about the dynamic of love. Love is mentioned over 550 times in the New Testament, and especially by the Apostle John. To John, you you cannot help escape the impression that for him, Christianity was first and foremost a religion founded on and characterized by love. He mentions it 57 times in his gospel and 48 times in his first short epistle. But when John and the other New Testament writers spoke about love, they used a particular Greek word. The Greeks had many different words for love, words like philos, which is associated with brotherly love and and friendship. It's a love, in a sense, if you like, characterized by interpersonal relationship. You have words like eros, which is associated with physical love, and love that was characterized invariably by appearance and desirability. As far as I know, eros love is not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. Yet store, which is family love, family ties, how a parent would respond to a child or a sibling to a sibling or a mother would respond to her baby. And then there was agape love, which is unconditional love. It's the word that is most used in the New Testament. In fact, in that famous phrase in the epistle to John where he says, God is love, what he actually says is God is agape. Agape is unconditional love. And here's the beauty of it, and here's the challenge of it. Agape love has nothing to do with the one being loved. In other words, it has nothing to do with relations or appearances or social status or even the worthiness of the person being loved. But agape love has everything to do with the character of the one doing the loving. Agape love, if you like, is the trajectory, the line that the Christian faith is lived out on. It is the line the church is enacted and embodied on. It is, to use a sailing analogy, it is the trim tab of the Christian church. A trim tab is a small six-inch piece of steel in the heart of the steering mechanism of an ocean liner. And without that six-inch piece of steel, it is impossible to steer the liner. Agape love is the trim tab that determines and characterizes the life direction of the church. And agape love is not simply a way of saying love. Agape love 
for the Christian church defines a particular way of loving. It has nothing to do with the worthiness of the person being loved and everything to do with the character of the person doing the loving. Here's another thing. Agape love is not a characteristic of personal spirituality. It's not something that you can do alone as part of your personal spiritual path. Agape love is a particular way of loving. It is not me-centered, it is other-centered and can only really be nurtured, practiced and learned in community. In other words, you need to be with the church to learn how to do this. Now here's another question. If agape is the default mode of the Christian life, a particular way of being and doing in the world, what does it look like? What does this other-centered, unconditional love look like? How does it go about its daily living? What kind of tones does it speak in? What kind of speech does it use? Moreover, if we endeavor to practice it, how will agape love shape our decision-making? How will agape love be reflected in our moral and ethical decisions? How will agape love be reflected in our political decisions? Are the political policies that we support and advocate for, are they characterized by the Christian ethic of agape love? Closer to home, is agape love reflected in how we do church? Is it reflected in how we have designed our worship space? Is the worship space and the worship experience here designed to suit our own personal preferences and our attachment to our favorite traditions? Or is it designed out of an agape love desire to make the experience of the gospel more accessible to the people we are called to preach it to? I want you to think about these questions, particularly in the midst of the present crisis. Think about how we should and could allow agape love to influence how we will do church now and in the future, to influence how we will design our worship gatherings, how we might design our worship space for the help of others. To help you think along those lines, let me simply close with the questions I started with. What business was Jesus in? What business is the church in? What business as a local church are we in? And now church, now friends, made a God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in you what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.